Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I'm returning to our Flavors of Fascism mini-series. Like I said, I'm probably going to be alternating between Flavors of Fascism, which sort of highlights particular forms of right-wing or fascist politics, and Fascism in Fiction, which is like, you know, sort of like a media analysis type little podcast about the way that fascism has been depicted in various forms of media throughout history for the next couple months. So this week, I am doing a Flavors of Fascism episode, and we are talking about the new right. Now, you might have heard this term a little bit recently, like people have talked about the quote-unquote new right with respect to the right wing in the United States post-Donald Trump or, you know, after the collapse of the alt-right coalition. But uh, to us historians and people who study the right wing, that's extremely irritating because there was already a new right uh, and not just in, uh, you know, various other countries, but there was a new right in the United States. Uh, and it was actually extremely powerful and important and arguably is the reason that Donald Trump was able to become president at all. The new right was a form of right-wing politics that emerged in the United States in the mid-20th century. And it transformed the GOP, uh, that is the Republican Party, from a classically liberal, primarily northern party, to the party that we know it to be today. One that is a union of free market economics alongside big government spending on the military, alongside social conservatism, that is, racism, sexism, opposition to queer rights, anti-abortion politics, etc., etc. Now, prior to this, prior to this realignment in the Republican Party, the Republican Party was governed essentially by a coalition of political interests that have come to be known as, quote-unquote, Rockefeller Republicans. And yes, uh, we are talking about that Rockefeller family. Specifically, we're talking about Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York from 1959 until 1973, and was eventually the vice president for Gerald Ford as a sort of like unite the party tactic. Ford, who became the president of the United States after having not been elected to be the vice president uh, after the resignation of Nixon, wanted somebody who could unite the party. And he picked Rockefeller, because Rockefeller was the emblem of the heart of the party at the time. However, even then, in the 1970s, there were the seeds of this realignment happening. The realignment that would eventually create things like Ronald Reagan, or George W. Bush, or Donald Trump, started in the 1950s, when the Rockefeller Republicans were in power. It originated essentially with intellectuals, like a lot of political movements do. And by intellectuals, I don't just mean like people who are professors who work at, you know, universities or magazines or something. I mean people whose job in the political world is to unite political thinkers. Specifically, we're talking about people like William F. Buckley, who became the editor of the National Review, the largest and most important of the conservative political newspapers and magazines in the United States. The National Review is still around and is still very important. And their politics, their, their idea for how to create a new right wing in the United States was called fusionism. Fusionism is the theoretical heart of the new right. The idea was to unite the pre-existing sort of like fiscal conservatism of the GOP, what we would call fiscal conservatism today. So that is opposition to union rights, laissez-faire economics, big business interests, to unite that with social conservatism. Now, these are not obvious bedfellows, and they are not connected in a lot of countries' politics. Specifically, prior to the 1950s, 
It was entirely possible that you could have imagined an alignment in the United States in which the Democrats are an extreme pro-union party, but also a very socially conservative party, whereas the Republicans would remain a sort of classically liberal party, one that is in favor of business rights, but also is in favor of increasing the rights of minorities vis-a-vis the uh, larger public sphere and thinks that like people should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies or something like that. That might have been how alignment worked. However, it was the work of people like Buckley and some of his descendants that prevented that alignment from being the one that we got. So this new coalition, this new potential coalition in the Republican Party really takes shape during the 1950s and specifically coalesced around the candidacy of a guy named Barry Goldwater for the presidency of the United States. Barry Goldwater sought the Republican nomination in 1964 and won it, and he became the the Republican candidate against incumbent LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, in 1964. Goldwater himself was a sort of transitional figure in the Republican Party because he was technically, you know, if you just look at his policies, he was technically something of a, you know, lowercase l liberal, like a classical Republican. He was in favor of civil rights, but he was more so in favor of states' rights. And that is how he became so uh, relatively successful. He won a lot of support from the South, specifically taking support that Democrats had uh, in the South. Goldwater was the originator of the so-called Southern Strategy, a major geographical realignment in the United States to take power away from the Democrats in the South, the Democrats having been historically identified with the South, not just since the Civil War, but even before that, during the presidency of Andrew Jackson in the early 19th century. So Goldwater, with his opposition to civil rights in the name of quote-unquote states' rights, was the originator of this Southern strategy. Now, the Goldwater campaign just didn't work. He only won the Deep South, so we're talking like Louisiana to Georgia, basically, but he lost Texas because LBJ is from Texas. He lost Florida. He only won the Deep South and his home state, Arizona. However, the wake of his defeat really changed and galvanized how the right wing was going to operate. They realized that this sort of like, you know, transitional kind of lowercase l liberalism, but some nods to, towards social conservatism, that wasn't going to work. Instead, they were going to completely change how politics worked in order to get their political ideology off the ground. Now, this is happening on the grassroots, right? We're talking about far-right Republican politicians and political leaders who are organizing within the party and outside the party, even as the dominant parts of the Republican Party are still, in many ways, lowercase l liberals. Like, Richard Nixon was prepared to sign the Equal Rights Amendment. Richard Nixon uh, signed the Environmental Protection Act. Richard Nixon made um, a lot of medical procedures free because he believed in that kind of stuff. Gerald Ford, similarly, is a figure in this in this vein, and Nelson Rockefeller is too. But underneath them was growing the political coalition that would come to dominate the Republican Party throughout the remainder of the late 20th century. And this political coalition is called the New Right. The intellectuals of fusionism, Buckley, were a little bit too highfalutin for these people. Instead, they wanted to bring this kind of politics back down to earth uh, and make it populist, make it popular. Specifically, in addition to uniting social conservatism and economic conservatism, they wanted to add in some Christian nationalism to the mix. 
We're talking about the culture wars here. Remember that this is the late 1960s and early 1970s. This is also the period of the transition from the civil rights movement, from its um, more nonviolent oriented uh, civil disobedience era to the era of more radical black politics. This is also the period of the heights of the radical parts of the anti-war movement in Vietnam or vis-a-vis Vietnam. And so they were they saw themselves as fighting this transition in the United States and that they thought that they needed to galvanize all the parts of the right wing in order to prevent the United States from becoming a country that they didn't want to live in. This is a real movement building era. So people are trying all sorts of things. They're, they're making organizations, they're, they're making publications, they're seeing what'll work. And the fact is that what they built did work. They built a new right, a movement that united pro-business neoliberal economics, culture war anti-left politics, and the Christian right. So when we're talking about pro-business uh, neoliberal economics, we're talking about people like Milton Friedman, right, who were brought in as examples, as exemplars of how the economy should work. This is anti-union, it's anti-government spending, but it is pro a lot of other kinds of government spending, specifically military spending. Culture war anti-left politics include things like Paul Weyrich's uh, Foundation of the Heritage Foundation, which remains an incredibly powerful right-wing think tank in the United States. Phyllis Schlafly's creation of the Eagle Forum and uh, her help to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment, which, again, the Republicans were going to sign until these insurgent right-wing figures got them to stop. The other ingredient in the new right is the Christian right which itself is a union between the previously not particularly politicized evangelical Protestants, exemplified by somebody like Jerry Falwell, a Southern Baptist preacher, and more extreme conservative Catholics, such as, for example, Paul Revick and Phyllis Schlafly. This coalition of the new right would eventually come to take over the party through the 1980s. Reagan is their sort of first foray into political dominance, Reagan winning out against figures like Nelson Rockefeller in the control of the party in 1980, becoming eventually the president. However, Reagan himself was still not the full flourishing of this political ideology. He was tough on uh, what they considered to be gender and race and economic issues, but he remained relatively soft in their, you know, in their opinion on things like immigration. Right. Reagan actually signed a major immigration amnesty bill, which meant that a lot of people who had crossed over to the United States without papers, without documentation, were allowed to remain in the United States and eventually become citizens. So the people of the new right considered this to be an, a somewhat incomplete example of the kinds of politics that they wanted. The first full success of this coalition can be seen with the election of George W. Bush. H.W. Bush, George W. Bush's father, and Ronald Reagan's vice president is probably the last gasp of this sort of like more lowercase l liberal Republicans. You know, he's from like Connecticut. He's just like he's just like a coastal elite guy who's a businessman and like, you know, a government operative person. Whereas George W. Bush tried to present himself as a popular figure, as a born again Christian, as a social conservative as somebody who is critical of gender rights, of race rights, of abortion access, uh, somebody who thought that the United States should essentially be a Christian civilization. Of course, the final victory of the new right should be identified in the victory of Donald Trump. Perhaps more than any other figure in the United States history, he exemplifies their politics. Pro-business, anti-queer, anti-black, anti-immigrant, and 
Christian nationalist, right? You know, he is a Christian nationalist politician, and he exemplifies the success of the new right as a political movement. However, one of the things about Trump is that he also added to this coalition more openly right-wing nationalist, more openly fascistic, more openly white nationalist political forces. And these were the kinds of people that the new right was trying to triangulate around. They were trying to say those messages a little bit less openly than the, uh, than the extreme right wing had been willing to say them. You know, they were trying to like get the kinds of people who would like what somebody like David Duke, you know, an active clan member might have said, uh, but without, you know, just like being a member of the clan. Trump's political move was to just fully integrate those forces into the GOP coalition and to do so very successfully. So in this sense, this is why Trump's victory is maybe both the victory of the new right and also its overcoming, right? It had served its purpose, and now a new political coalition needs to be operative in the Republican Party. And that's precisely what we're seeing now. We're seeing a conflict within the Republican Party over what will be its dominant branch. And notice that the Rockefeller Republicans, they're not an option anymore. They're gone, right? When Trump talks about the rhinos, Republican in name only, he means the new right. You know, he means people who aren't white nationalist enough. He means people who haven't uh, drunk enough of the Kool-Aid. Another important thing to remember about the new right is that this political movement originated in the 1950s, really got fully organized and got its first big victories in the late 1960s and early 1970s, but only really captured the presidency in the 2000s, you know, in 2016. It's an important reminder that building political movements, that making big coalitions, and that changing political opinion takes an extremely long time. It means building large political movements. It means building organizations. It means building foundations. It means changing politics from the ground up. It can't be done just by seeking what people currently want. You have to change people's minds over time. And that is a lesson that the left wing should keep in mind when it comes to trying to reshaping United States or world politics. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you listen to this on. And seriously, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your comrades about this podcast. It's the only way people actually learn about it. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word and all spelled out. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And also fascism 15. I am in the process of getting a mastodon, but I haven't set it up yet. Uh, all right. Thanks very much. And I will talk to you next week. 